Welcome to the Think Podcast with Joel Sedekes. Today I'm sharing with you a conversation that I had with RC Apologist, Reformed Christian Apologist, on his YouTube channel last week. We talked about my book, The Doctrine Shapes the Defense, The Importance of the Trinity in John Frame's Apologetics. And this is a little book that was originally a paper that I wrote for seminary. And I've self-published it, and RC heard about it, thought it sounded interesting, and wanted to have me on to talk about it. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Trinity and apologetics and how um, John Frame's triperspectivalism is derived from the Trinity and the implications of triperspectivalism on apologetics. So we're getting a little deeper today. I think there will be some very good takeaways for anyone, whether you're interested in apologetics and you've been studying it for years, whether you're very familiar with John Frame's triperspectivalism um, or not, or whether you, this is all totally new to you. If you want to learn more about this topic or listen to my conversation with RC Apologist on the Think Podcast, which we also recorded last week, go to thethink.institute.com slash podcast. And while you're at thethink.institute, you can find out more information about how to get in touch with me, book me to come and speak at your retreat, conference, church, or group. And you can also find out more about how to partner with my family and the Think Institute prayerfully and financially as we are support raising missionaries. All right, without any further ado, here's my conversation with RC Apologist about my book, The Doctrine Shapes the Defense. As always, I hope it makes you think. Hey, what's up, guys? This is RC Apologist here with a very interesting video. It's not the uh, presuppositional apologetics uh, kind of discussions I've been trying to get started up. Uh, again, like I mentioned with, uh, I think last week I did the one answering a few questions and then getting some audience Q&A regarding tackling some issues. We, tap, we tackled universalism a bit that one day, and that was interesting. But now we're going to cover something that I have been looking forward to for quite some time here, especially considering, as I mentioned, I am in the John Frame form of Vantillian presuppositional apologetics, and I find uh, another person that is interested in the same thing. He is an author that is based on the uh, back of this book here. Uh, he is the author of several resources for Christian apologetics and discipleship, including the New Covenant Catechism for Little Ones. Um, here with us, and going to show him on the screen for y'all, is Joel M. Setcase, a.k.a. the author of The Doctrine Shapes the Defense, The Importance of Trinity in John Frame's Apologetics. Welcome to the show, Joel. Thanks, RC, man. Glad to be here. So we had a conversation earlier on Islam on your channel. Now we're taking over into this one for a part two, if you will, uh, covering over your work, which I had to say when I was reading it um, this week, um, upon looking more into it, it is number one. I keep hearing like you mentioned some about the format when we talked in private. I got to say the format's easy for me to read. It's made it a very easy to handle book uh, with it, especially the references to um the the citations um that are in here so before we begin uh let's go over a little bit about who you are we mentioned a little bit about uh what was mentioned in the back of your book on the little about the author section but tell us in your words uh who are you uh as joel said case 
Uh, well, thanks for asking. I'm quite simply a man who has been transformed by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, I am a, a very grateful husband to my wife, Elisa, and father of four awesome kids, each one cooler than the next. And uh, we make our home out here in the Fox Valley area uh, region outside of Chicago. And uh, what I do is I'm a former pastor who saw during my time as a pastor, the incredible need for training in the biblical worldview, uh, gospel engagement or evangelism, and the defense of the Christian message or apologetics. And so what my wife and I did was we started an organization called the Think Institute. And uh, maybe you can see the, the little graphic behind me sitting on the shelf there. Um, mm -hmm. But the Think Institute is an organization really founded on the belief that no Christian should ever get caught flat-footed when asked what or why we believe. And so what we do is we seek to equip believers to explain, share, and defend the Christian message. And we do that through um, podcasts and video channels and um, uh, media ministry, through in-church trainings and, and um, curriculum development. And uh, so we'll come into your church and do trainings. And then we also do uh, something called the Hammer and Anvil Society, which is uh, private, personalized training, uh, cohort-based training in biblical study, Christian worldview, evangelism, and uh, the defense of the Christian message. So I have uh, a really fun job. I get to do conversations like this one with you. And uh, one of the things that I love is creating content and writing um, to equip believers. So that's kind of me in a nutshell. Mm hmm. Interesting. Uh, so thank you for that. Now, go over the book. Um, um, this is a very interesting one. I have, you know, seen and heard of several people go over frame as definitely an influential individual in the field of apologetics, philosophy and Christian theology overall. Uh, and with this short one, it went over specifically, as the title says, the doctrine that shapes the defense, mm -hmm. the Trinity. So what is the motive? What was the motivation in writing this particular book? Um, as well as what uh, you believe in the title is in how is the Trinity essential to the being the defense that is shaping for us? Yeah. Great question. I wrote this book originally as one of my capstone papers for my master's degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I had recently discovered mm -hmm. presuppositional apologetics, was just getting into John Frame, and was fascinated by Frame's triperspectivalism, which is his scheme of approaching theology and really the entire world in, in triads. In other words, um, Frame... And uh, to a large degree, Frame's former student and now colleague, Vern Poitras, have really built on the theology of um, Cornelius Van Til, who is the godfather, the grandfather of presuppositional apologetics. And what Frame articulates in his triperspectivalism is that all reality can be approached epistemologically, so we can gain knowledge from the world by accessing that knowledge through three perspectives. He talks about the normative, the situational, and the mm -hmm. existential perspectives. The normative perspective, well, the explanation is really right there in the name, the norms. Um, when you think about a norm, you think about what things 
ought to be, laws, principles, the way that things must be, logic, uh, you know, the laws of logic. Okay. So the normative perspective um, mm -hmm. for, for John Frame is ultimately rooted in scripture, in the authority of God, in the laws that govern the universe. Mm -hmm. Then you have the situational perspective. The situational perspective is the way that things are. So the normative perspective is the way things ought to be. Mm -hmm. The situational perspective is the way that things are, the way that we actually experience the world, the way that the world is um, as we access it and as we gain information from it. Um, and then you have the existential perspective. And mm -hmm. the existential perspective is, is, our, uh, is really ourselves as subject. Uh, it's the subjective aspect of the world because RC, the way that you experience the world and the mm -hmm. way that I experience the world is going to be different. That doesn't mean that truth is radically relative or anything like that. Only to say, it's only to say that our experience is by definition subjective because we are both subjects. And so the yep. way we interact with the objective reality of the world is we do so in a subjective way, but we do so according to the norms and laws that God has put in place. So you and I, um, let's say we are faced with a math problem. Um, you and I might solve the math problem using two different approaches, but the uh, objective reality is going to be there. And then the, the, the reality that one plus one is two is the norm that governs whether or not our answer is correct. And so um, all that to say, John Frame's triperspectivalism, when I discovered it, uh, it, it radically revolutionized my thinking. I started seeing triangles everywhere, as a friend of mine once put it. And so what I was really interested in then is what is the connection between triperspectivalism as an approach to reality and to knowledge and um and what's the connection so what's the connection between triperspectival epistemology theory of knowledge mm -hmm. and two other things apologetics and the trinity what is the connection between the trinity our epistemology and our apologetic in other words um is what I really wanted to know when I started researching this paper, and I, I, I didn't know, I couldn't find it articulated anywhere, was is triperspectivalism true because, or does John Frame believe it's true, because God is triune, such that all reality is actually triperspectival, is actually triadic or or threefold? Um, is that because God is triune or is it just kind of an, a fascinating way of looking at things in other words is it interesting as a pedagogical device um a way of of teaching or is there something about reality that actually makes everything triadic or triperspectival and if so is that because the world is created by a triune god mm -hmm. and if that's the case which i ended up deciding that is the case. And I think uh, I also realized that Frame does believe it's the case, and uh, which is pretty cool because prior to writing this book, I don't believe uh, John Frame articulated that anywhere, where um, his triperspectivalism is expressly rooted in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that was cool because I wanted to create something that put forth um, an actual advance in knowledge that no one had ever done before. So, um, so 
in terms of uh, you know what I wanted to discover, I wanted to discover the relationship between the, the Trinity, our own knowledge, and our apologetic. And um, you know, I don't know if I fully answered your question. Just let me know. But I'm I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk about how that fleshes out in terms of how we do our apologetics. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, if you want, uh, because I do believe you did answer a good bit of the question. But if you got well, because I think that's a lot of what usually people think, especially the, some of the Muslims uh, and even some of the more newer people in the skeptical community uh, think like they just think apologetics is just, you know, they're familiar with like the evidential approach and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And when normally people think uh, precept, they think either Saiten Bruggenkate or uh, Bonson, but even they put Bonson in a negative light usually when they try to do that. But like in terms of, using the Trinity in the methodology and how you apply it, because I believe that's actually one of the things that you use in the, one of the portions of your book uh, and the methodology and practice, the seventh chapter into it. Um, you do mention on how to kind of apply this in there. So yeah, do ex- explain that, how, how you uh, take that and then apply that in application. Okay. So um, because we are Christians, Mm-hmm. We are starting from the presupposition, not just that God exists, as if God was some loose, undefined concept that uh, we could fill in our own content, um, you know, into that. Um, but specifically, the triune God of Scripture exists: mm-hmm. um, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Yahweh, as revealed in the Bible. Um, so, so all of our apologetics needs to be rooted in that reality, and. As um, as as important as the doctrine of the Trinity is to us, we also have to begin with the presupposition that the Bible is the Word of God. It's the self-revelation of that Triune God. Um, as presuppositionalists, what we what we do then is we, is starting from that presupposition, we then reason our way out into the world and find that we can make sense of the world given that presupposition. Well, so then when we're doing apologetics, which apologetics uh, is d- defined variously according to different different um, apologists, but um, in this book, I think I give a, a stipulative definition where I say it's something like the the joyful um, the, the, the joyful application of biblical truth to unbelieving thoughts in a compelling way, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, as Christians, we need to do apologetics Christianly. We need to defend God's truth in God's way. So if we are starting from the presupposition that God's truth, God's word is true, we should never feign neutrality as though entering into an apologetic conversation, we are neutral. Uh, yeah. As though, you know, well, hey, if the unbeliever makes enough good evidential arguments against God, well, I might be convinced, you know, that God really isn't the Lord. Well, no, that that's not that option is completely off the table to us because as believers, we need to love the Lord our God with all of our minds. And as my friend who's an apologist points out, there's no way to reason your way out of that position. If you're loving God with all your mind, Jesus Christ is Lord of your thinking, and there's no way to um there, there's there's no way uh that evidence that in other words, um mm-hmm. I I have given up the epistemological authority that I thought I had before I was a Christian so that no one could reason me out of that position. Um, so our apologetics then, as we are um, 
uh, as we're trying to do this in a presup uh, in a, uh, a triperspectival way, we need to think about our apologetics from three perspectives. What is the goal of our apologetic? What is the standard of our apologetic? And what is our motivation for apologetics? So our motivation, as defined in First uh, Peter three fifteen or three thirteen through seventeen, if you want to look at the broader passage, is um, our motivation is to obey God, to glorify Christ, and to experience participation with the Holy Spirit in applying God's work to persons and mm-hmm. in growing Christ's kingdom in the uh, in the world to the glory of God. In other words, in short, what we want to do, according to First Peter three, is we want to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. We are um, we are motivated by the lordship of Jesus Christ, by the by by the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what's motivating our apologetic. Our um, our goal for apologetics, then, or the the criterion for our apologetic, is we want to um, we want to show that the biblical worldview is absolutely true, in not probabilistically true. Mm-hmm. but absolutely true in such a way that it shuts the mouth of unbelievers and vindicates biblical truth. Um, we want to, we, we want to shame those who would accuse us of believing irrationally contrary to evidence uh, against evidence, fideistically, um, irrationally in a, in a way that's, that's bigoted towards truth or something like that. Mm-hmm. We want to, to actually silence the unbeliever, not in a way that that destroys him or her, but in a way that shows them that the accusations against us are baseless. And what we want to do is we want to show that biblical truth is true according to the norms, the situation, and um, and and uh, our, our own human existence. Um, so, in other words. As presuppositionalists, we might say, well, the biblical worldview is the only one that makes sense of the laws of logic or the the um the you know laws of math or the laws of morality, those laws that govern the universe. Only the biblical worldview makes sense out of those laws because those laws presuppose the kind of entity that God is. He is invisible, um, immaterial, unchanging, absolute knowable and um uh tripersonal mm-hmm. um as we, you and I talked about on my show just a few minutes ago yep he's got his ultimately personal and he is also triune um we also want to show that the christian worldview is the only one that um th- that makes sense of the evidence so john frame is a lot more amenable to using evidence in our apologetics than many other or maybe even most other presuppositionalists Mm-hmm. So for frame, he has no problem with evidence-based arguments, as long as they're done in a presuppositional way, as long as we acknowledge the fact that the very concept of evidence itself relies on the, the prior presupposition of the existence of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of, of the Triune God. And then we also want to show that the biblical worldview makes sense and is deeply satisfying to the human soul. You know, living in God's world while trying to deny the lordship of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's a hard road to walk, R.C. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, it, is, uh, it, it is a hard thing to do to constantly be suppressing God's truth. And so what we want to show, and this is sort of the existentialist approach, is we want to show that the biblical worldview makes sense and answers those deep longings 
of the human heart. And so, um, so that's, so an approach that I often use, and I think this accords with what John Frame talks about, is it's a three-step approach. On the one hand, we present the biblical worldview, uh, scripture, as the um, uh, norma, normans, non-normata, the norm of norms that cannot be normed itself. In other words, the biblical worldview is, mm-hmm. um, is the norm that makes sense Scripture is the norm that makes sense of the laws and and the fact or, or the the laws about the world. Um, we show that it it accords with the world as we experience, and then it's deeply satisfying. Um, oh, so step one: show that the biblical worldview makes sense both of the objection and is able to answer the objection. That's step one. Step two is we refute the non-biblical worldview by stepping into it for the sake of argument and showing that it is internally inconsistent. And then step three, we appeal to the unbeliever to repent and trust in Jesus Christ, because just as their worldview is incoherent and cannot be true, and just as the Bible is internally coherent and consistent and necessarily true, that same Bible, which condemns their worldview and, and makes sense of the question, also says that Jesus is Lord, that the wages of sin is death, and that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so then we make an appeal, an existential appeal to our non-believing friend to repent and believe the gospel. So, um, so that, that is, so we've addressed the motivation for our apologetic, the goal, sorry, the, um, yes, the, the goal of our apologetic. What about the standard? The goal, standard, and motive. Goal standard mm-hmm. mode. I got to make sure I get my triad correct here. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so the standard, um, the the standard. I probably already have alluded to it. All the try, all the uh, perspectives are interrelated. So I'm probably going to bounce around here. But the oh, yeah. standard by which we approach our apologetics is we presuppose the scripture is true, and we do not waver from that, and we are constantly testing all of our claims and the unbelievers' claims by the standard of scripture. So when we're doing apologetics, we have to do so in a way that is biblically authorized, um, which to the extent that classical apologetics or evidentialist apologetics don't do that, they run into all kinds of problems because they're violating the standard that God lays out in scripture. Um, If we pretend that the biblical, or if, if we pretend that the unbeliever is actually neutral and we try to join him in his neutrality, finding common ground between our two worldviews, we're actually negating what the Bible says. The unbeliever is not neutral. And we shouldn't pretend that he is. And we shouldn't pretend that we are either. We're both standing within our our worldview. So uh, that might be a good introduction to how we're going to do apologetics in a tri-perspectival way. Um, And it's, it's, you know, maybe that sounds kind of complex. If you want me to maybe see if I can simplify it, I'll I'll do my best. But... um, uh, yeah. that's sort of how I approach it. And I, that's a good thing there. And I would survive, advise people that, you know, some people may be tuning in thinking what, what, we, what we're talking about. I have done a video kind of presentation explaining triperspectivalism, but this guy did it uh, with a much better voice and with definitely, I believe, a much more, it definitely lays out a lot of details that, you know, what I had pointed out in my uh, presentation video on triperspectivalism you went into much more fuller detail, especially in the application and while forming a triad of yourself, as I noted there. Uh, yeah. which again, I, I know the same feeling. Like there's times I go to work 
and I'll say, I, I can make anything in terms of this three, this triad thing, give me a topic and I'll show you. And I get yeah. like weather from meteorology and music, I find ways to do so and everyone keeps getting mm. impressed by it. So I know how you feel about when you say, you when you discover triperspectives and you can start to see like these triangles everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, but part of the triangles and of course the doctrine that shapes the defense. And by the way, a reminder for people that are tuning in, uh, if y'all have a question for Joel, we'll see if we can make room for any questions. Um, we're almost about out of time we've got about eight minutes or uh, less than eight minutes on our deal and i am trying to do my best to keep up with our time and limitations here uh but feel free to ask joel any questions if you got any further man uh, but i do want to cover one quote i don't want to quote too much from it because i do want people to give it a shot to read and it is in the description the link to go out to amazon and get the kindle or the paperback version uh to your house um but in page seven uh, is, is going over the section that is regarding the human limitations in comprehending the Trinity. Mm. And the quote that I found interesting, because again, I think that's the main topic you'll usually get to when engaging in apologetics, regardless of your positions, is the Trinity. Because you mm. say, we are fallen, fallible, and finite, so we may not comprehend the Trinity fully. We can only go so far as scripture itself goes and no further. In fact, as you point out, and I have pointed this out to Muslims and others who have criticized the Trinity. In fact, frame goes so far as to suggest that perhaps we need to give up the pursuit of a fully comprehensive Trinitarian model. Now the work you cited from, I haven't had a chance to get, but I am definitely going to afterwards, but I do notice in his apologetics book, uh, apologetics is justification for Christian belief um, and various others. He does seem to take this notion of, you know, the Trinity, is not something that in terms of trying to come up with this like model to explain it, it's going to be hard to do so. And hence why he will not try to make any apologetical effort to uh, defend it in terms of making a model, but he will at least point out that it is the necessary presupposition that we must start with. So with that uh, being said, based on that quote, uh, you have the Trinity being something that's going to be a stumbling block for those who are trying to look into the faith and will have those questions about how can he be three and one in that discussion. Since this, as you mentioned, is the doctrine that helps shape the defense for our triperspectival approach in apologetics. How do you um, deal with the defense of the Trinity, the very ultimate presupposition and foundation that we adhere to? Yeah. Okay. So, so how do we defend the Trinity? Well, Remember the trin the when we're talking about the Trinity, we're talking about the nature of God Himself, and God, God's existence, the God, the Triune God of Scripture, is the necessary presupposition to make sense of the world. Um, and you, you might say, "Well, isn't that Scripture the truth of Scripture?" Um, yes, but when we're presupposing the truth of Scripture, we're also presupposing that it is. God breathed and the specific God who breathed it out is the triune God of scripture. So, you know, those two presuppositions, I don't know which one is logically prior. I don't know if you can say one is logically prior, logically prior to the other. All this to say, RC, the, what you might say is sort of that old presuppositionalist saw that um, it's true by virtue of the impossibility of the contrary. Mm -hmm. How do you know that the Trinity is true? Well, I guess you could say if the Trinity is not true, if God's nature is not triune, then the Bible, which clearly teaches the triune nature of God, is false. But if the Bible is false, then we can't make sense out of human experience whatsoever. 
because it's the Bible that provides the preconditions of intelligibility, as we often talk about logic and the, the conditions of science and uh, and everything else. So the same Bible that that gives me rational justification for all my beliefs and the reliability of my truth-seeking faculties, you know, my five senses, my reasoning, is the same Bible that teaches that God is triune. And this is something I've been getting into lately, but you can't chop up biblical doctrine and say, I'll take this, but not that. God was so wise in how he revealed scripture that all of scripture is interrelated. You know, um, the doctrine of creation is intricately bound up with the doctrine of original sin and uh, the first prophecy of the gospel in Genesis 3.15. And, um, you know, uh, John 1 fleshes out what Genesis 1 says. And so, mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's all given narratively. In other words, the whole Bible, it's not like God just sent down a basket of propositions for us to believe. He wove the propositions together into a story so that if you take out one of the propositions, that part of the story no longer makes sense. And all the whole story culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. And Jesus authenticated all of scripture. He said, the scripture cannot be broken. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to do away with the doctrine of the Trinity and say, I'll believe everything except the Trinity, you, scripture itself doesn't allow, allow you to do that. God was so wise when he revealed scripture. So the only way to believe any part of scripture is to believe all of it, if you're going to be consistent. Mm -hmm. So if so, that works both ways. If you want to believe the Trinity, you have to believe everything else. If you want to believe everything else, you have to believe the Trinity. So again, if we want to make sense of the world, if we want logic, logic only makes sense if we presuppose the truth of scripture, but that means believing in the Trinity. Mm -hmm. Well, if you say, well, I don't want to believe in logic. Well, good luck, <laughs> I guess, you know, uh, ha have fun with that because um, you're not going to be able to make sense of the world without logic. And um, so essentially the Trinity is true by virtue of the impossibility of the contrary. Um, mm -hmm. That's, that's kind of where I would go. The, another thing that really fascinates me, again, looking at this from another perspective, yeah. If if you want to prove the Trinity, I don't know that this is a knockdown drag out proof, but as you said, and as I said earlier, once you start to see the triangles everywhere, once you start to realize that all of reality is triperspectival, that there are triads and triangles everywhere, you have to ask yourself, what makes the most sense of a reality that is irreducibly triperspectival? Like it, it's not like one of the perspectives is more essential or more ultimate than the others. You know what I mean? It's not like yeah. the laws, it's not like the norms are, um, are more essential than the facts or that the facts are more essential than, than my subjective understanding of either of the, uh, of the norms, norms or the facts. All three are intricately intertwined and, equally ultimate. Doesn't that sound like a world that was created by a triune God? I mean, God wrote his signature on all creation. Everything is triperspectively related, not 
quadruperspectively, not biperspectively, but triperspectively. And it's like, okay, maybe if it were just one or two aspects of reality, we'd say, well, you're just kind of making that up or that's coincidence, but it's everything. Everything is triperspectively related. So I think from that per, from that perspective, all creation is evidence of the Trinity. Point to anything, point to anything, and it's you know you can you can analyze it from three perspectives. So I think that's another very powerful argument. Of course, as a Christian, I already believe in the Trinity, so that I love that argument. I think that's kind <laughs> of you know that's kind of an evidentialist argument, but mm-hmm. um, or like an evidentialist precept argument. I don't know if that's a thing, but to me, I love it. Mm-hmm. But if I were a non-Christian, I probably wouldn't buy it just because I you know these spiritually spiritually spiritual truths have to be discerned by the spiritual people. Yeah. Oh yeah. And and I, and there is, of course, and I remember that's one of the main things I noted in the theology in three dimensions is that there is indeed, you know, you have a precept evidentialist and then he used existentialist. Yes. um, I believe in reference to kind of the apologetic and the philosophy of uh, Karl Barth uh, and Immanuel Kant in terms of how at least I've, when I've studied them and read it, that's kind of how the apologetical approach that they took is the issue about experience and the feelings and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, man, that is a, that is definitely a good explanation there. And that is a good defense as well for there. And of course there is going to be a bias when it comes to some of our arguments, because as you know, we have those presuppositions. So that's usually what's going to help us understand and what we desire. But that has been the uh, time that we have to try to, because we have been trying to make sure that we're on a schedule there. And I do thank you for, because that's even though there was like, what, maybe like, three or four questions you answered it as if you answered 50 questions that was a lot <laughs> and very a lot of beneficial um um information uh, there but i will say uh, i will at least allow one question this is coming from an in- interesting individual here i'm kind of surprised he's actually responding with a question here uh digital hammurabi aka dr joshua bowen um is asking the question with respect to unbelievers he asked the question uh, I'll ask a basic question, probably a basic question. I don't know. It may seem basic enough. He's asking, what do you mean by neutral? Mind you, this is going to be the only one we'll, uh, we'll allow for the most part. So uh, if you want you, if you want to answer this one, uh, feel free. All right, cool. And can I just say Digital Hammurabi, very cool name. I like that. So what do we mean by neutral? Well, when we're talking about neutrality, we're talking about the supposition that a person can approach a fact and and in and seek to interpret that fact outside the context of a worldview which would include a view of reality so like a metaphysic a view of knowledge an epistemology of um an, an anthropology a view of what it means to be human um there there is no way to interpret facts as if you were a brain floating out in the middle of an ocean, severed from your worldview. Just like we make decisions rooted in our nature, so I'm giving away my Calvinist uh, position there, that's a very Calvinist thing to say. Mm-hmm. In the same way, we also interpret reality based on our worldview. Now, Romans 1 talks about um, how man knows God but suppresses the truth and does so in unrighteousness. In other words, although we all have access, in fact, unavoidable access to knowledge about God's eternal power and his divine nature, which I believe includes his his triune nature. I think that is partly what Paul is talking about there in Romans 1. Because 
of our sin and our sin nature, which only compounds um, as we grow, we sin more. And so the record of our sin, the, the guilt of our sin grows. God has put the works of the law on our heart so that, and, and he's given us a conscience. This is all Romans 1 and 2, okay? Such that when we sin, in our heart, in our consciences, we know that we've sinned against God. We know certain things about God, and we know that we've sinned against God. So the more we sin, the more we have to suppress that truth. Further, the more we grow and gain knowledge about the world, the more we see God's glory on display. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God in the same way all creation declares the glory of God. And I would say that since there's only one God, that's the triune God of Scripture. So what you have is the more people study the world and the more people sin, which just happens over time, the more they need to suppress that truth. So as a Christian apologist, the last thing I want to do when I approach a non-believer is to believe him when he tells me, I just want the facts, I want to be neutral, and all I need is enough evidence, and I will neutrally, they're rarely this explicit, but this is the this is what they're trying to communicate. I will neutrally analyze the facts and come to a conclusion as an impartial judge. They're asserting neutrality, but in reality, they are at the same time, even by denying that they have enough evidence of God's existence, or, or that God is there. I don't necessarily like to say God's existence. That has implications, but that God is there. By even by even saying that they need more evidence, they're taking a position and they're revealing that they don't actually believe or that they disbelieve, or, or let me say this, that they're not neutral towards God. So when I approach a non-Christian, I never want to say, I'm neutral, you're neutral, let's meet on common ground and let's argue uh, let's let's debate neutrally. Instead, what I want to do is I want to say, let's look into your worldview internally and examine it. Cornelius Van Til calls this performing a reductio and showing how it reduces to absurdity if you take its presuppositions to their logical conclusions. Then we're going to go into my worldview, the biblical worldview, and we're going to show how it does not reduce to absurdity, but actually makes sense of the objection and answers the objection. I'm not neutral. You're not neutral. If two countries go to war, they're not neutral. They both want to destroy the other. Now, I don't want to destroy the unbeliever, but my worldview does demolish his worldview. And my hope is that that, will, that encounter will lead him to repentance and saving faith in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. um, I do see that there's a couple of follow-up questions. Um, I'm happy to answer them if, if we have time. Oh, if you, if you want, it's ultimately about you because I know that definitely it's uh, your schedule for the most part. But if you do want to, yeah, he did ask uh, the uh, follow up there. Uh, do you think you're using the word neutral in that context in a colloquial sense? Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I think you'd have to probably define colloquial just like you have to define neutral. But I think what's really important to for me as the believer in Jesus Christ to remember is that I'm dealing with someone who just as I did and would still, if I, if I were not saved by God's grace alone, I'm dealing with someone who is not impartial towards the God that created him and that I believe in. So um, the, 
uh, okay, I see another comment here. Sorry, I meant the person you are talking to is using it colloquial, colloquially. I don't know. When I think of colloquially, I, I I think of like this is how it's used by a certain group of people, like like kind of like culturally. So I guess I'm not really sure what you mean, digital Hammurabi, but um, I I guess. As a believer, what I'm trying to say is the Bible doesn't give us the authority to um, to believe the unbelievers claim that they are impartial. I mean, I, I have unbelievers who will tell me, I just need the evidence. Just give me the evidence. And then, and then if you ask them, well, what evidence would convince you of the God who says you already have enough evidence? There's no answer. There mm-hmm. can't be an answer because according to God, they already have enough evidence. They already know God and they are suppressing the truth. Now, suppression of truth is something that is done deep in the recesses of one's spirit. You might say in the subconscious so that they are even self-deceived. It's not like they're out there going, I secretly believe in God, but I'm denying it expressly. This is one of the benefits of presuppositional apologetics. And I think of approaching apologetics triperspectively is you're, you're undercutting the unbelieving worldview and showing them, look, you might not think that you acknowledge God's existence, but the very argument you're bringing against God presupposes God's existence. So here are the laws you're appealing to. Here are the facts about reality. And here's your own, um, approach to both of those. And none of those accord with what you say you believe. You don't get logic. You don't get a logical response and you can't reason logically without God. Um, Unless you presuppose the God who is there, the God who is the ground of logic, the God who, whose mind is logical, the God who is immaterial, unchanging, universal, um, absolute, knowable, and the three persons of whom are equally ultimate. You believe in that God, you can have logic. You don't, you cannot. There's no way to ground the laws of logic in the kind of metaphysical scheme that you say you believe in. So, um, however they're using neutral, uh, they're not it. They can't be it. Unless they're just saying like, I'll do my best to try and understand and be impartial. And in, in, in that case, it's like, great, please do. Um, but, but of course, as believers, we understand mm-hmm. they can't really repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ without the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. So, Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for asking these uh, questions. By the way, it's been a while, Digital Hammurabi. Uh, thanks for uh, checking up with us in the live chat. And again, of course, uh, like I mentioned, there's uh, ways to follow up and catch up with uh, uh, Joel here. Uh, has a YouTube channel where I was just on earlier, uh, the Think Institute. Um, as is noted in that logo in the uh, back there on the right side of his uh, deal there. Uh, very nice logo, by the way. And of oh, course, uh, any other ways uh, that they may uh, follow you or uh, stay up to date on what you have going on? Yeah, you can check out thethink.institute. That's our website where we've got uh, all of our, I've got a few different podcast shows that we have. Um, if you're a podcast listener, if you search for Think Institute or if you search for my name, Joel Sedicase, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or uh, any of the uh, major platforms. We're on at least at least 11 different platforms, so we probably have you covered, Google Podcasts. But if you search for Think Institute, uh, you'll find us on there. And um, I, I also want to say, too, 
my my wife and I are support raising missionaries. And if you're interested in partnering with us, RC, I hope hopefully it's okay that I give a oh, little yeah. plug here. Uh, if you're interested in partnering with the work that we're doing prayerfully and financially, you can go to give.crew cru.org slash one zero one eight eight four one. One zero one eight eight four one is our giving number. And um, we are support raising missionaries and the generous support and partnership of our partners is what allows me to be able to do this full time and keep food on, you know, my kid's table and everything. So uh, we're very grateful for that. But um, also, if you want to reach out to me, you can email me at thethink.institute at gmail.com. All right. And thank you for that. And thank you, of course, for coming on to discuss the book. By the way, a reminder for everyone who wants to give it a read, uh, very beneficial and not too much uh, on price. So it's definitely not going to hurt your wallet. It's definitely not an excuse uh, to try to avoid getting this book. The Doctrine Shapes the Defense, the Importance of the Trinity in John Frame's Apologetics, a very edifying book right there uh, in his uh, hand. Let me, in fact, let me see if I can just get your uh, screen uh, there. It's uh, still trying to get used to everything from oh dang it i am doing terrible this there you go there full book on display there so you definitely can see the name the title the subtitle everything this doctrine that shapes the defense uh good book highly recommend get it on amazon the link is in the description uh that being said thank you all for tuning in and again not just subscribe if you haven't already to my channel but if you had go ahead and go to the think institute youtube channel and all the other links as mentioned follow and subscribe to those and this has been rc apologist thank you all for tuning in and take care